Welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by my rad co-host, Amy Hollenkamp, RD. Hello, everybody. Hello. (laughs) So today's episode, we are going to talk about blood sugar, particularly as it relates to the gut and IBS and SIBO and everything in between. Uh, Amy, let's kick it off. Blood sugar, kind of a big deal, eh? That's kind of like a foundational big deal breaker for a lot of stuff, but gut health included, wouldn't you say? For sure. And I I do think that it's more it's more looked at and understood when there's like major blood sugar dysregulation in the conventional space. So a lot of the conventional docs know that if someone has diabetes, it could affect gut function in major ways, especially like the nerves within the gut being Mm -hmm. damaged by blood sugar swings. But I think there's a lot of people that don't have that severe of, of blood sugar dysregulation, but still have blood sugar issues to where it really affects their gut. So I think like there's a lot of understanding in the conventional space, but I feel like in the functional medicine space and integrative space, people might touch on it, but I don't feel like it's really touched on enough. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, pretty frequently. Um, I think that it's tough because we're in such a sugar addicted society and like on the one hand, we have people who are really sugar addicted and carb addicted and those people could probably use some restriction in that sense. But then there's a lot of people who are like, I have candida or I have SIBO and I can't, I can't eat a carrot because it has carbs. Right. Or I can't eat whatever. And it's like, like those are the people where it can get really tough to have these conversations because I don't want to send somebody down the rabbit hole of restriction more than I absolutely need to. But yeah, I, I do think that both hyper and hypoglycemia being high blood sugar and low blood sugar is a pretty big deal breaker for the body in general, let alone the gut. And you hit the nail on the head with the nerves and the motility in the gut being a really big focal area. Right. And I I love that you're bringing up the two sides of the coin because the standard American diet that's really high in carb sugar is definitely going to lead to more blood sugar swings. But I also think concurrently in the SIBO space, if you are cutting a lot of carbs and going to the extremes in that way, it could lead to more blood sugar dysregulation, which I don't think is talked about enough. Mm -hmm. So if you're going low carb and you're having blood sugar dysregulation, sometimes people will even cut more carbs thinking that it's going to help, but it could just be adding more stress to the system and more blood sugar dysregulation. So I think the answer isn't always to cut 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 carbs wise and i think that's what you were getting at when you were like we we work in this weird SIBO space where so much focus is on starving things out um but i do think that going down that rabbit hole could make blood sugar dysregulation much worse so i did just want to point that out too and we can go into more detail on all this stuff yeah sure Yeah. And I think um, maybe a good way to organize our thoughts for this podcast is to start out with the high blood sugar, like insulin resistance side of the coin and then swing back over to the hypo or we could do vice versa. Um, But I do think that both can be really detrimental and they both kind of come with their own quirks and their own like physiology states um, and they can have different treatments. But like to start off, um, this episode makes me think of a patient that I'm working with right now. And it was 
probably a story that you've heard a lot too. She came and found me because she'd been to the GI doctor, got diagnosed with SIBO, thought, hooray, this is the answer. They put her on Rifaximin or Zyfaxin, I forget which, and she felt good. And then the SIBO immediately came back. And then they did another round of antibiotics and she felt okay. And then it came back. And after a few rounds of the antibiotics, she was like, okay, well, clearly it's going to keep coming back. And she was getting really frustrated. And that's how she found me. And we, we were the first people, you know, together to talk about the idea of root causes. Like, why do you have SIBO in the first place? And what things are keeping you stuck? And one of the big things in her history was that she's a type 2 diabetic. Mm. And I don't know if you've noticed this too, working with people with, with type 2 diabetes specifically, the conventional medical world has different standards for blood sugar and A1C that they expect type 2 diabetics to adhere to. Like, I'll never forget, it was a couple of years ago, my father-in-law was like, uh, yeah, my, my doctor says that my A1C is great. And I'm like, oh, cool. What is it, Paul? And he goes, oh, it was down to 7.0. And I was like, huh? yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. that's not yeah. good. He's like, well, my doctor says that that's good for a diabetic. And I'm like, right. Like, why are we holding them to different standards than normal humans? I don't get that. But, you know, I think um, by her her knowledge and from her conventional team, they're like, oh, your diabetes is well managed. But her fasting glucose was still high. Not, right. you know, not like in the 200s, but it was like in the low 100s, like 120s, somewhere in there for fasting. And she's on several medications for diabetes. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it's like, clearly there's something still going on with your blood sugar because A, you need these medications and B, your A1C and your fasting glucose are not normal. And we we had a really big conversation about, you know, I know you're doing a, a pretty good job on the blood sugar front, but you might have to be more strict or more meticulous or really get a better understanding of your glucose because if you have high glucose levels, if you're still insulin resistant or hyperglycemic, that's going to fry your nerves. And among the nerves that we care a a whole lot about, that will be a detriment to the nerves in your intestines that regulate motility. And then that's where you're getting the SIBO recurrence from. Right. Um, So I've definitely had cases where I'm like, you know, like, bro, (laughs) or I don't know, bro, I don't know. Uh, Like, we need to, we need to be much more stringent about the blood sugar thing. Um, and I do think it could be like, a, maybe not a SIBO root cause in the sense, I don't know if diabetes would be enough to cause SIBO intrinsically, but it could definitely keep you stuck and prevent you right. from fully treating the SIBO, if nothing else. Right. I've never worked directly with someone with type 2 diabetes and SIBO, mm. but I'd, I'd almost venture to say that it could be a root cause in and of itself. Like, Again, it's hard to know for sure, but yeah. if it is kind of frying those nerves. I think it could be. And I know like things like gastroparesis are really common. Mm-hmm. In, so, you know, there's going to be an inherent motility issue if yep. you have wildly uncontrolled or even not wildly, like still uncontrolled glucose levels yeah. in type 2 diabetes. But Yeah, I mean, I definitely think if you're someone that has diabetes and it's uncontrolled, uh, it's going to be really problematic. Um, Yeah. And usually I would say, like, uh, even with type 1 diabetes, I I think even then, again, if you're having these uncontrolled swings, it's going to still create a lot of problems gut-wise. Yeah, I Um, agree. But I also think, like, an interesting thing about blood sugar 
is the idea that you know gut imbalances can drive blood sugar swings as well or if the gut the gut is imbalanced and dysbiotic it's going to cause a lot of inflammation if there's leaky gut there and these endotoxins are seeping through the blood Mm -hmm. causing a lot more more inflammation a lot of this low-grade chronic inflammation Uh, the term uses this metabolic endotoxemia Mm -hmm. term which is basically saying that you have endotoxins seeping out into the blood and they're affecting your metabolism in a negative way so i do think that there's a lot of interconnections of like how the gut could drive some some blood sugar swings Mm -hmm. um but also vice versa if you're having blood sugar swings it's going to affect gut function so there's like a lot of interplay there um too and i always i always wonder with things like type 2 diabetes as a whole not even in the SIBO space type 2 diabetes a lot of these chronic issues like cardiovascular disease um uh, diseases that affect the metabolism in big ways uh, how they're how they could potentially be connected to gut function even if they're not having gut symptoms Um, and there being this, this blood sugar effect in, in those particular conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the endotoxemia thing is a really great thing to touch on. And to a point where, you know, I, I forget if I mentioned it in a recent podcast, I just put the paper away and filed it away, but there was a really great meta-analysis. I think it was a 2019 paper where they were looking at basically like what, what symptoms or what conditions or what risk factors are actually associated with intestinal permeability, AKA leaky gut. And that's the thing that's really going to set the stage for this metabolic endotoxemia. Right. If the gut is leaky, then more crap gets through and that crap can entail bacterial endotoxins and fragments and little bits and pieces from your microbiome. So, you know, leaky gut is very, very associated with quote unquote metabolic conditions like type two diabetes, hyper, uh, hypercholesterolemia, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, heart, cardiovascular disease to some extent. And it's actually less associated directly with things like, you know, um, IBS, IBD. It, there's an association, but it's not nearly as strong. The really big heavy hitters, if you want to know if you have leaky gut, is if you have hypertension, high cholesterol, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, insulin resistance, like that's the kind of stuff that really is the humdinger. Um, So I do think that there's a very strong link with these metabolic impairments and leaky gut or endotoxemia or both. And then there's also, heck, there's, they're trying to develop acromantia mucinophilia probiotics, mostly because it would be beneficial for type 2 diabetes. There are some papers now that are suggesting that if we can develop an acromancia probiotic, and there is one on the market now, I don't know how good it is, but if they could develop an acromancia probiotic, that that could be a treatment potentially for diabetes or metabolic syndrome, which I think is really interesting. Right. I just, it's mind blowing to me that there's such a strong connection between leaky gut and the, what's going on in the gut and these chronic conditions that are, I mean, huge in our country. Um, And I think because I went through the conventional route Mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends and cohorts that I went to school with are working within these populations. Um, And 
I think in the conventional space, no one really owns the microbiome. Like, I guess yeah. potentially GI docs might think they do, but they don't know enough about the microbiome. Meanwhile, they don't order poop tests. So. Right, it, exactly. So no one's really owning the microbiome. I, I think that, it, I wish that dietitians there was a stronger connection being made between the microbiome and chronic disease. And I think it's slowly coming, but I, I yeah. do think in order to make really big changes in the chronic disease world, we we need to make that connection and start working on gut function. And it's so, I think it's hard to make that connection because they're not having, they might not have any gut symptoms, Yeah, but yet they have terrible gut problems that are, that are underlying some of their chronic diseases. So that's a hard connection to make. It's really wild. Like the longer I practice, the more I'm astounded that the human body is so resilient. And yeah, there could be people with really wild gut problems that are basically asymptomatic. Or like progressed cancer that's like, you know, you don't detect it until it's way like, you know, my uncle had a, weird rare tumor and they didn't detect it they didn't know he had cancer until it was the size of a melon like a fairly good sized melon now granted he was overweight and it wasn't his abdomen but still like the guy was carting around a melon sized tumor um and to give you what kind of melon are what kind of melon are we talking i mean i remember him gesturing like you know i mean like a cantaloupe yeah like a decent sized cantaloupe oh my Um, gosh but yeah, I mean, to UNC Chapel Hill, they, they treat it. That was years ago. He's been in remission ever since. But it's uh, pretty wild how resilient the human body is. And I've seen cases like that where, you know, at first glance, you don't think somebody has gut problem. And then I just follow my clinical intuition. And I'm just like, well, let's test some stuff and see what pops up. And then, right, you know, the treating the gut ends up being a big answer for them. Um, right, right. I also think, I mean, I, I remember something in in maybe a Detiste Karazian book, I'm trying to remember, Hmm. where he even said, sometimes if the nerve endings aren't super together, like you might not have any pain, but still have a lot of inflammation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like in some of those conditions, there could be some nervous system or brain gut axis issues, not really registering as pain within the gut from a Mm -hmm. brain and nervous system standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I just wish there was that connection being made. Uh, and I think we'll probably get there. It's just going to take a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, I hope that the dietitian profession starts to really claim some responsibility for the microbiome with dealing with a lot of. I mean, if you're dealing food with. And, exactly. I mean, uh, probably the the uh, one of the biggest ways to manipulate what's going on in there is food and if you know you're not working on that at all and that's not on your radar um it could be really problematic yeah no i think that the the nutrition profession broadly should be all about the microbiome and some are to their credit but it's not broad across not right. not in conventional settings at least um but to go back to that I will share, and I think that we talked about this before we hung up from our last podcast when we were just chit-chatting. Um, I became really interested a couple years ago in the idea of continuous glucose monitoring, monitoring for non-diabetics even. 
and there was a study out of Israel. I forget how how many years ago it was, maybe 2015, right. 2016, where they were looking at, um, I believe it was a cohort of people with type 2 diabetes, if I remember correctly. And mm -hmm. they looked to see uh, when they were continuously monitoring their blood sugar. So like every five or 15 minutes or whatever it was looking to see, all right, when you eat this meal, do you get a spike? Like if, if both of us today ate white rice, maybe the white rice would throw me way off and make my blood sugar go way high, but then your blood sugar, not so much. But then both of us sit down for another meal and we both have white potato and I'm fine and your blood sugar goes through the roof. So there's this idea that yes, you could eat lower amounts of sugar or you know low glycemic or even keto, but there is some individuality to people's blood sugar responses. And this has been really freaking cool to start observing. But that study, you know, they basically concluded that, that like some people can eat a sandwich with white bread and it does nothing to their blood sugar. And some people get a big spike and some people will eat, you know, sushi or white rice and get a big spike and some won't. And what that study did was that they looked at the microbiome and they said, all right, can we correlate it with something that we're seeing in stool testing? And they did. So then they did another study like within, you know, a year or so later where they took another cohort of type two diabetics, they did stool testing first, and then they tried to predict their blood sugar patterning based on the stool test. And they, to at least some extent, were able to successfully predict using stool tests. So then of course they came out with a commercial product and a stool test that you could purchase for like 300 bucks. I got one of those. We were one of the first people to order that. I got one on my husband and I was not impressed at the time, at least. Maybe they've updated it since then, but I wasn't super impressed. But I liked the general premise of, oh, hey, the blood sugar response to food can be very individualized. Um, and now I have gotten in the habit of certainly with type 2 diabetic patients, but even you know patients who are trying to figure out their blood sugar and they just need to collect more data, um, I've had people go to their primary care or their OBGYN or something and request a prescription for a continuous glucose monitor. And actually now to the point, I'm wearing one, I don't, there we go. I'm wearing one right now. And it's really fascinating and insightful to collect this kind of data and see just what things mess with your blood sugar and what doesn't. And I know I've been texting you my pictures every morning, like, look, my blood sugar dipped at four o'clock in the morning. What is that about? Um, but it's, it's really fascinating to see that. So that's actually something, you know, I think the Libre, the one that I got, the Freestyle Libre, the unit itself was like 80 bucks. And then the the doodads that go on your arm are like 60 bucks a pop. I think I got them for two for $60 because I had a good RX coupon. So it's actually fairly cost effective. And this is something like for that patient with type two diabetes, I recommended that she ask for one of these as a prescription. Um, because it can be really insightful to just get a sense, like maybe you think you're being really good and diligent about eating low glycemic, but those, you know, gluten-free cookies or whatever it might be is wreaking more havoc on your blood sugar than you otherwise would have thought. Um, or maybe there's a surprise food that you think is okay, like brown rice, and it's really messing with your blood sugar more than you realize. Um, but that's something I've been kind of excited about in the last couple of years, especially. And I've seen some patients get really profound, useful data collection from doing that. And it's been really insightful for them. Really cool. No, I think that that's a really good tip of, you know, if you're wondering if you're, if you are having some symptoms of blood sugar swings and we can maybe go into what that would look like, but if you are like doing some self-exploration 
isn't out of the realm of possibility of you doing on your own. It's pretty easy. Um, I think the continuous would be awesome. I'm interested in trying that on myself. I've done finger prick stuff, Mm -hmm. um, which again, gets old after a while. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can prick your face, (laughs) prick your finger. Um, And I think too, if you're trying to get like really complete data it's hard with the finger prick comparatively to the continuous glucose monitor Mm -hmm. um but i think what you're saying is a really good point about the individuality of the blood sugar response um i know in the dietetics field there's a lot of talk of the glycemic index which i think is kind of being blown up right now and in that research what you were describing it's Mm. it's not really showing that that's a really effective way to manage. It's a very individual yeah, type. Yeah, it's a starting point. Right, right. And there's going to be variance between individuals. Yeah. Um, but most of what's done in the conventional space is carb counting, mm. which is honestly like the most unintuitive, <laughs> the unintuitive um, like program for people to do just because instead of using like grams, which I think everybody could understand. And I still don't even think like, even if you're counting grams, everyone's, everyone's carb needs might be different within the, the community, but yet we have these very almost protocol like levels of like, okay, if you're, if you're this person, you're going to have two carb counting that mm-hmm. you're, you're going to have two carbs you can eat at this meal. But it's just so unintuitive, the carb counting. Uh, I don't want to get yeah. in the weeds with it, but yeah, it's like learning a different language for people. And it's not like, it's not overly complicated, but it complicates it more than it has to. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, just really making sure that you're listening into how your body's responding and things like glucose monitoring can help. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in cases where like you don't have type two diabetes, it's not like you're like yeah having these major uh, blood sugar swings that would require an endocrinologist or something yeah. like that, but you're still having enough swings where it's affecting your everyday function. Mm-hmm. Um, I know personally, which we haven't talked about, I had some wild blood sugar swings mm. um, where blood sugar was literally in like the 400s, Woo! which my doctor thought I had type 1 diabetes, so I got tested. Gosh. Um, that was like when I was in the, the high point of my, or like the, I should say low point of my SIBO journey, I had these wild blood yeah. sugar swings that were like really uncontrollable like I try to and I try to monitor it with like I was someone who was dropping in carbs once I saw these crazy blood sugar swings because you're like oh shoot like I'm like flying into this right I'm flying into this high blood sugar state and I'd say like the 400s happened once and then but I'd still maybe hit like a 300 mark um but I would say on average, I was going up into like the high 100s to low 200s following a meal. Um, and that'd be That's a meal. A lot. Yeah. And that'd be a meal with really not that many carbs. So it, it was wild. Um, I will say that when I did treat the SIBO, my blood sugar was way better. Um, so I do think that there was like, 
some layer of it that some layer of endotoxemia that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, like, again, I was, I got tested a whole bunch and they're like, you don't have like your A1C is fine. It's because I was swinging up and down. Yeah. So the average the, was okay. So the average was okay. So I was yeah. swinging like low for a while and then I'd go high and it wasn't like I was staying high either. It's like I'd hit these peaks and then I'd go shooting down. It's almost worse though. Your poor body is like, oh my God. Right. Right. And I felt bad and it took some, I'd say it took a while for me to get blood sugar under control. Um, and there were times it, it kept there. Were, I think there was a constant level of improvement from that point, but I definitely had a lot of blood sugar swings during my journey and it was not comfortable you couldn't really focus well when the blood sugar swinging oh, yeah, um, i'm sure the, the synapses were not synapsing right at that point. you don't sleep well so my sleep was pretty disrupted um so i'd kind of wake up at like 2 a.m and be starving mm. um and kind of craving something to to bring my blood sugar up um yep. so I, I mean for me it, it was just a wild, wild blood sugar journey and it took some time to, to get regulated, but. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it did. My gosh. Yeah. And like as a reference point, you know, you were saying that pretty regularly you were getting up into like the high 100s or maybe low 200s after a meal. I mean, I've been, I've been monitoring with the CGM for about a week now. Um, I think the highest I've seen, even after a meal, even a meal that contains some carbohydrates is like 122. Yeah. Um, I set my range as kind of an arbitrary range. I set it to try to keep it between like 70 and 120 for the Mm -hmm. most part. So I see when it goes just a touch above or below those marks. And yeah, that's, that's pretty damn high. It's interesting because with your journey, you had more of the hyperglycemia piece for mine. When my gut was a train wreck, I was very hypoglycemic. Yeah. Wow. Um, So it's interesting how it can manifest differently in different people. But like for me, and part of this too, like, I wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg. When I was an undergrad, A, I was a rower. So I was working out like once or twice a day and really pushing it hard athletically so there was just this like constant need to keep calories up especially yeah. carbo loading that was big yeah. so we would just wipe out like the olive garden right. <laughs> we would just eat all their pasta and so a i was eating a lot of calories just because i was working out like a crazy person um but also in my classes in my exercise science program like the bachelor's degree i have you know we were taking nutrition classes and exercise physiology classes and that was I don't know if it was the beginning, but it was definitely in the time where we were telling everybody, and I was learning in class, you need to have six small meals a day to balance your blood sugar. And all of us, you know, all of us students heard that. We were like, oh man, we need six small meals a day to balance our blood sugar. Okie dokie. And so in undergrad, I forget how much was influenced by athletics versus my undergraduate degree, but a, a lot of a lot of us just started eating the six small meals a day because we were fed that line of bullshit. And it wasn't, you know, even through grad school, um, that was still a very similar narrative. And even like, I remember my first couple of years getting into functional medicine, like I remember Karazian saying six, you know, those small meals for the hypoglycemic person. 
And by the time I started getting into functional medicine and learning it and taking courses, you know, I was learning from people like Karazian that you need to have the small frequent meals for hypoglycemic people to make sure their blood sugar doesn't go in the dumpster. And I was already doing that, but now I was getting dependent on it where if I deviated from that and I didn't have my mid-morning snack or I didn't have my mid-afternoon snack, I would start to get a headache. Right. And I never really got like crabby, like, you know, those stupid snicker bar commercials where they're like, you're not yourself. You need a Snickers, which is like the yeah. worst thing ever. Like hangry. Like yeah. Hangry. I never got I like, definitely got hangry guys. Yeah. I never got hangry, <laughs> but I would get like, my tendency has always been like headache and mm. then maybe like a little woozy and just like, ugh, and like really low energy. And I started becoming more consciously aware that if I didn't keep up the snacking routine, I'd eat six or seven times a day, I would get that and to a point where I felt really stuck. I was mm-hmm. like, well, what the hell, what, like, what do I do? And for me, likewise, it wasn't until I treated my gut and I figured out that I had the two parasites, the candida, the bacterial overgrowth, treating that has helped me. And what I learned since then in more recent years is that that reactive hypoglycemia thing, those low blood sugar swings, is very much tied to inflammatory cytokines. Mm. So I think for me, it was probably that I was cooking up a boatload of inflammation and those inflammatory signaling molecules, those cytokines were making me more responsive to my insulin. So I was too efficient at sucking the glucose into the cells and then I would bottom out my blood sugar and then crash and burn. Right. Um, But ultimately it goes back to, you need to treat the source of the inflammation for that reactive hypoglycemia to go away. And for me, that sure as heck was my gut. And I've seen that with other patients too, but it could be a really tough thing. And I know like I've talked about it in FODMAP Freedom recently where some of these people are feeling really stuck because they have to snack or they're gonna feel unwell. And being hypoglycemic is going to be inflammatory and not good for them and make them feel like crap. But for the purposes of SIBO specifically, you don't wanna be snacking all the time because then you're never going to get your MMC waves and you're not going to get good cleansing waves and motility to clear the damn SIBO. So it's like this, this really sucky catch 22 to juggle sometimes where you might need to do more like intermittent fasting or like time restricted eating in order to clear the SIBO and get your motility logged back online. But you also don't want to dump yourself into the gutter with hypoglycemia So sometimes it can be really tricky kind of trying to juggle those two things in order to get the maximum benefit. Um, Right, right. I think from my standpoint, what I usually try to check in on as well is like where overall calories falling too. Because I think a lot of times as well, like the blood sugar crashes could be from under eating, mm -hmm. Um, which I mean, I see all the time we've talked, we've talked about it into the ground, but I I do like to check in on that because if there's under eating going on, you're going to probably have some stress on the brain gut axis, some stress, um, some cortisol dysregulation, which Mm -hmm. could affect blood sugar. Um, So sometimes in those situations, like I think optimally fasting, I usually I think for me, the trajectory I take with my clients is like, we want to get you to a point where you can fast comfortably, which mm. I think is the same of what, what you're saying. But sometimes I'll, I'll let them, or we'll kind of agree like, okay, maybe a snack's okay until we yeah. can get your calories up until we can kind of stabilize that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I think you're right. It is a catch 22 because like the more, the higher the frequency of the meals, the more it could affect um, overall gut function and the migrating motor complex and those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so it's a hard thing to juggle for sure. Yeah. And something I've started playing with more recently, um, and I haven't gotten the feedback from the FODMAP Freedom Group, if anybody's tried this yet, but something that I've tinkered with, because I've gotten really into like fasting, fasting myself, Mm -hmm. where I've gotten up to doing like a a three-day fast with nothing but water and tea and maybe like a little bit of a glycerate. And um, glycerate I have found to be useful for these situations, especially with myself, where... um, if I'm like, if I'm doing one of my fasts, for example, and I'm like two days into it, if I start to get that little bit of like hypoglycemic headache and I think, oh, all right, I'm not, I'm kind of bottoming out a bit. I have noticed for me personally that I could have a squirt or two of a glycerite. And I'll tell you about that in a second, but I could have a squirt or two of that. And it's like just enough glycerin to take the edge off the blood sugar without really putting a lot of stress on my system. And my favorite for that is I made a cinnamon glycerite. So I just like, I did a, you know, I sealed it up in a basin jar. I forget what the recipe is exactly, but it's like 50% vegetable glycerin, which you can get on Amazon or at the store. Glycerin, 50% water, and a whole crap load of cinnamon. Chips just like chopped up and you seal it up and throw it in a pan of boiling water and let it cook for like an hour. I forget if I did an hour, hour and a half, but it is... A, freaking scrumptious. It is the yummiest thing you'll ever eat in your entire life, minus chocolate. But um, it's delicious. And also, it does seem to take the edge off the blood sugar Mm. without completely ruining the fasting state. So I have started playing with that a little bit more with patients where it's like, all right, maybe the solution is, you know, you eat breakfast, use a couple squirts of the cinnamon glycerite in between, and then have a nice big healthy balanced lunch, couple squirts of cinnamon glycerite, and then it's like we can start getting you into more of the appropriate pattern of having space between your meals and getting that MMC activity without bottoming out your blood sugar and making your body hate us. <laughs> so right. that's been helpful too. Totally. Um, no, I think that's a an interesting point. I've Again, I've never tried the glycerin, and I think like personally, I do think it's sort of, is that it? It is. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh, it's good. It's like big red gum, but better. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I, I think for me, it definitely took me some time to work to a point where I like very easily can do three meals a day. Mm. Um, I think that what I've seen working with people, I do want to kind of bring it back to like a low carb standpoint as well. Mm. And why you want to be careful of that you're getting an optimal amount of carbs. I think first you want to make sure that calories are optimal because that could be in and of itself throwing you into a more um, blood sugar dysregulated state. But also on the dietary side of things, carbs, I, I think that we're, especially women are very sensitive to carb level, which I know we've talked about in the past, probably more so than men. Um, But carbs are really key because we need a certain level of carbs to prevent activating our stress response. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're always supposed to have blood sugar circulating in our body. It feeds our brain. It feeds uh, 
it feeds a lot of different things. So we need, yeah, we need blood sugar to be stable and our body has some ways to keep it stable if we're not eating enough carbs and that, that what it does is it needs to generate glucose from protein and that whole process requires cortisol. So if you're kind of dipping lower in the carbs from a dietary standpoint, your body's going to be kind of activating this cortisol system, activating cortisol to make glucose from protein. Yeah. So it's kind of this tricky scenario if you're someone that, you know, might struggle with carbs digestively because you really need to make sure you're getting enough carbs to balance your cortisol levels and your adrenal system out and your brain gut access system out so that you're it's not stressing your body out mm-hmm. um if it's if it's requiring an and it, again your body can adapt but it's not necessarily like an optimal scenario in most yeah. cases uh, so it, it's really important that you're meeting your carb needs so that you're not going into this state where your body's basically flying into a stress response to maintain blood glucose mm-hmm. levels. And I see that all the time in the SIBO and IBS space because, yeah. as we've mentioned, there's a lot of fear around carbs and feeding things. And Well, and that's IBS and SIBO-specific and candida-specific, but right. also right now we have the world moving in a very carb-phobic direction. Right, with- right you know, first it was paleo, like I sound like such an old timer, but I've seen the rise and relative plateau of paleo, the rise and relative plateau of keto. And now we're getting the rise of carnivore. Yeah. It's like, I'm just waiting for there to be a diet where it's like, you will only eat black pepper, nothing else. You know, like, I I don't know how much more restrictive we could get. um, But, you know, we're going in this direction of carbs are evil, plant foods are evil. And it's really pretty bizarre. And for all that, a lot of people, women included, can lose weight doing one of these diets. That doesn't mean that it's the greatest for long-term health purposes. And I do agree with you. I think that our bodies, you know, whether you choose to have children or not, your bodies and your DNA as a woman is hardwired to think you want to have babies. And your body, if it perceives that you don't have enough fuel or you're not stable enough or nourished enough to support the life of a baby, it's going to shut down all your hormones. And it's, you know, it's not like there's an off switch on the ovaries where it can say, don't spit out the egg, but keep making the hormones. We want the hormones. Like it doesn't work like that. It's just like a master shutdown switch where now your hormones are affected. And then keep in mind too, A, insulin is just a hormone point blank. And all of the hormones chit chat with each other. So there is a thyroid insulin axis. There's an estrogen insulin axis. There's all these interconnections between all of the hormones that make this giant complicated web. And it's really freaking cool. But the takeaway is if you mess with one hormone, you have a great potential to mess with all of the hormones. Right. And one of the things that will really F up your sex hormones, like cholesterol, um, the, uh, you know, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and cortisol, like all of those will go hangwire when you don't have enough carbohydrate coming in. Right. Because again, your body is just perceiving starvation mode. We must, you know, we must be in the middle of a famine. The crops didn't do well this year. This isn't a good year to have a baby. Shut it down. And um, isn't it, it funny, like, 
talking through how the body is responding to things that like are totally foreign to us in reality like the crop's gone like because food's so abundant but like that was a thing like a hundred years ago in this day and age we don't have to care about this crop so much i mean like maybe one year you won't be able to get bananas or something but you know generally there's going to be something you can eat but you know 100 150 years ago that wasn't the story um and certainly not thousands of years ago so i do think that looking at it from like that evolutionary perspective of just your body being smart enough to shut down reproduction when it needs to and then mucking with the hormones i think that's really important to know um because yeah i mean ultimately insulin is just a hormone and it behaves like another hormone um men on the other hand are much simpler creatures in numerous ways and i will say too like Insulin tends to get a bad rap because it is associated with diabetes, but like really insulin's a very important hormone. It basically tells our body we have short-term fuel. Mm-hmm. Um and it's really important for thyroid function and uh, tons of other hormones again because like you said they're yeah. all interacting. Um but I I do ha- have you listened to any of Chris Masterjohn's work on insulin? Ooh, I don't think so. I really like his stuff. I don't know if I've listened to his stuff on insulin specifically. It's really, it's talk. really interesting. Um, he kind of just basically says that like calorie status is much more important than insulin in terms of like, um, like measuring it, like in terms of chronic issues and inflammation, those sorts of things. You know how like there's the in- insulin hypothesis mm-hmm. where like high insulin's driving a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, he calls that into question and says it's mainly a calorie issue, um, not necessarily a carb issue. So like he puts it in into perspective, like you might be eating a higher level of carbs, but that's not necessarily gonna be a problem insulin wise, as long as, again, your body, you're under a certain calorie point. Hmm. Um, well, and I'll share this with you too. Sorry, did I cut you off? Did you? No, want- you're, you're totally okay. fine. Um, another point too, that I think this, this could be like a whole forever conversation. Um, going back to the idea that insulin is a hormone and it behaves like other hormones and is affected by things like another hormone would be there is the whole wide world of endocrine disruptors or obesogens. And this is like terrifying. Like I actually, I just lectured on this yesterday and I told everybody, I was like, if I do my job right, you'll be kind of horrified by the time I'm done with this lecture. But that means you'll take action and you'll try to avoid some of these compounds. So that's okay. But like, if you read research on things like bisphenols, which are including but not limited to BPA. Yeah. If you look at things like bisphenols and phthalates and parabens and PCBs, holy macaroni, man. It's crazy cray. And again, they're going to mess with, you know, your sex hormones and mess with things like fertility and thyroid function and like more of the hormone hormones. But a lot of these are associated with diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome. And there's even some research, I think it was a mouse study. I remember they talked about it at the Environmental Health Symposium a year or two ago. There was this really compelling lecture, I remember, where they basically showed that even if you feed animals a higher amount of sugar, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become insulin resistant. 
But if you couple that with some BPA or phthalates or an endocrine disruptor or a toxicant, that's where you start to get the increase in things like diabetes and insulin resistance. Right. And it's really freaking wild when, and really scary when you read about it, because honestly, every single one of us on planet Earth is getting exposed to some of this man-made chemical crap. There's no way around it. The only thing you could do is try to minimize your exposure, but there's no such thing as a control group anymore because there's no human on planet Earth, as far as I'm aware, who has genuinely zero exposure to these man-made chemicals that are endocrine disruptors. It's in our right. water, it's in our air, it's in our food. It It's really quite scary, but that has a really, really profound effect on blood sugar regulation also. And I think that's something that doesn't get a lot of attention in the conventional space or even honestly, the functional medicine space. I think naturopaths do a better job about talking about that, but then some of them might take it a little bit to the extreme and turn right. into like the really hardcore detox people where they only talk about detox and nothing else. Right, um, right. But I think the naturopathic profession, at least to their credit, talks about these chemicals a lot more than any other profession I've seen up until this point. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that that's not something that's talked about as much in like the, I want to say like conventional functional medicine, conventional yeah. functional medicine space, mainstream like M- functional MDs, medicine, integrative yeah. medicine providers. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I've definitely heard that more in the, on the ND side of things. Um, something certainly to consider lowering your use of plastics, those sorts of things would be awesome if you're having blood sugar Mm -hmm. issues. Um, Also farm-raised salmon is a big, big source of a lot of these mm. compounds, particularly PCBs. But if you get wild caught, like I just, I was telling a patient yesterday, I was like, if you have the option to eat farm-raised salmon every week or once a month splurge on the good stuff and get wild caught once a month, do that. Yeah. Like it's actually, I think it's better to eat seafood less frequently and splurge on the good stuff. Right. And minimize your exposure because the half life of some of the stuff in the body is so long. It's not like you could just take some charcoal and be like, oh, cool. I, I, I like, you know, I'm good. It doesn't right. seem to work like that, which breaks my heart because I love seafood. Yeah. Anything that came out of the water, I'll eat it practically. Um, but it is pretty profound. Also, the fish that are caught in the Great Lakes and sardines are pretty big culprits for a lot of these endocrine disrupting compounds because they bioaccumulate. Mm. Um, yeah, I yeah. think, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I think you had a, a point, but I want to make this point before I forget about it. Too. Yeah, go ahead. Um, one time too, I think it was two years ago. Um, I, we used to have this big gluten-free expo thing in Raleigh every year. And they've said, stop doing it, but I would speak for it that, that event every year. And I remember it was probably two years ago. I went there and I, I did my booth and I was chit-chatting with people after my talk. And this couple came up to me and they, they were so sweet. And they were like, we, we work with like a chiropractor who does functional neuro and functional medicine. We're big fans. Your talk was great. It was like, yeah, that's so cool. Functional neuro is so cool. And we, we nerded out on that. And they had the most fascinating thing to tell me. And I would love... In another lifetime, I want to be a researcher, like, you know, in a lab. And I think this would be such a cool study. But they said, yeah, get this. When we started working with our functional medicine provider, uh, we made the switch and we got rid of all of our cosmetics and toiletries. And we switched to everything that's phthalate free, paraben free, et cetera. And both the husband and wife have type 1 diabetes. 
and they do continuous glucose monitoring all day, every day, and they have for years. And they obviously, they monitor how much insulin they take every day. They said when they cut out these endocrine disrupting chemicals, both of them noticed that they needed less insulin. Whoa. Yeah. And I thought, Wild. holy crappity crap, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. That would be yeah. the coolest study ever. Of course, type 1 diabetics are the perfect people to study this with because, of course, they're going to be acutely aware of exactly how much insulin they take in every day because they're injecting it. So they are the perfect cohort of people to understand, oh, today I need more insulin or, oh, today I need less. And they're going to track that shit for years and years and years. But I thought that was the coolest thing and also the scariest thing that I've heard in a long time. But again, it's insulin is just a hormone and it's going to right. be disrupted by endocrine or hormone disruptors. And they swore up and down. They were like, we, I forget what they said. I think they said they cut their insulin basically in half over oh the course gosh. of a couple of months because specifically they got, you know, they switched over to natural soap, lotions, beauty products, fragrances, and they really started detoxifying their life. And it was pretty cray wild no that's yeah. really cool um i did too want to add one other aspect on insulin and i see this this is kind of a nuance a nuanced point so i don't th i think again if you're someone that's like been down the SIBO route or the candida route and you're having blood sugar dysregulation or you're like trying to add carbs back in and it's like you're having a problem with it um Sometimes I think thiamine's at play there. Mm -hmm. Thiamine is a part of, or is needed for insulin production. Um, yeah. And I often think that many of the thiamine sources are taken out on these SIBO mm -hmm. protocols and these lower carb protocols. Um, and thiamine, again, has so many effects on the, the gut-brain axis as a whole. Huge. Um, but the insulin side of things, I think, is interesting. Sometimes thiamine can be at play if if you're not, if you're having trouble reintroducing carbs, I look at, at thiamine status and see where the diet is at in terms of thiamine. I've yeah. seen it be a, a bigger factor for some of my clients, making sure they're getting enough thiamine. Absolutely. And you actually, you're prompted me, I'm pulling a book off the shelf because there was something that I highlighted that I thought would be really useful to share um, yeah, we could, I want to do a whole episode eventually on thiamine, which is vitamin B1, by the way, guys. Yes. And it is a pretty big deal, particularly for the gut brain axis. And I've had some cases where it, honest to God, it was like borderline miraculous. Right. Just adding right. in the thiamine supplement. And I know one, for ex example, um, I can think of one guy, he had tried a regular old run-of-the-mill water-soluble thiamine supplement and then switching them to the fat-soluble version really made a profound difference. So there's even that nuance. But there was an interesting, I think it's this book. Hold on. Let me um, find it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I think that the, unfortunately, when you remove a lot of the conventional grains, which I think are, it's a, a good thing to remove conventionally produced grains and you start removing things like beans um, and legumes and you remove uh, other foods that are higher in thiamine when you're going the SIBO route even things like asparagus have some thiamine in them but if you remove a lot of these these thiamine rich foods it's just hard to 
to add it back in. And again, I definitely see some people with some blood sugar issues uh, coming out of a low thiamine state. So, yeah. And to a point, I've actually started testing whole blood thiamine in a lot of my patients with IBS and SIBO. And I've had a few cases where it came back blatantly low by LabCorp standard, at least, which you know it sucks when LabCorp flags it. Um, But I'm seeing a a fair, fair, fair number of my SIBO and IBS patients have like low normal levels. Right, right. Where it's, you know, it's in the bottom, you know, quintile per LabCorp's range. And then the supplementation seems to really help. And also reintroducing the foods that actually contain the damn vitamin is really big. But yeah, that's a really excellent point because you need thiamine for carbohydrate metabolism. And I thought it was in this book, but it must be a different book. There was a really interesting case study where they talked about uh, basically like a man who didn't have diabetes or any blatant blood sugar issues, but he had like one, one like crazy binger day where he just, he pounded down the cake or he had like an exceptional amount of sugar. And then he basically started manifesting some of the symptoms of beriberi of mm. blatant B1 deficiency. And yeah. then it was, his symptoms were cured with supplementation with vitamin B1, but he needed way more than just like the normal RDA because he right. it becomes so deficient. But they said that he burned through a lot of his B1 in that whatever the sugar binger or uh, bender was that he went on, I forget what he ate, like a cake or something. Um, but it is, it's really, really interesting how much that plays a role. And that's a really good point too, for carbohydrate metabolism. Right. I, I do think that it's not usually a nutrient that's on people's radar either as potentially no. being deficient. And part of that is that like the standard American diet has, has done a lot of supplementing into the conventional grains, like mm-hmm. B1. So fortified grains have B1 put into it, or again, some whole grains have B1 naturally mm-hmm. in them. But yeah, I think in the like functional integrative space, that's just a nutrient that doesn't get enough, um, no. doesn't get enough spotlight. Honestly, I think the only people I've seen, cause I follow a lot of like experts and gurus and stuff on social media. Yeah. I think the only two people I've ever seen post about it on my feed, at least are either you or Chris Masterjohn. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was doing a series where he talked about every nutrient, every vitamin, every mineral. So I think it was just part of his parade. I don't know if it's a focus, but I've definitely seen you post about it. And I'm like over here applauding you. I um, <laughs> just, I think even it was before we started doing the podcast, I've been a right. fan of yours for a while, but I was like, yes, thank God somebody else is talking about this. Um, B12 and folate and magnesium and vitamin D. Sure. Everybody's going to talk about those and iron. But right, yeah, right. B1, B2 is another one I'd love to do a series on because that's another pretty important nutrient. And I do mm-hmm. find that some people are either blatantly deficient or low normal on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly for carbohydrate, B1 is really, really important. Right, right. Yeah. And it's, again, there's a lot of factors that could make you at risk in the SIBO IBS space yeah. for thiamine. I do know that it looks like too, there's certain bacteria that can steal thiamine Mm. or there's bacteria that can produce it. So you might Mm. be low in those particular markers as well. That could lead to more deficiency. Um, But yeah, I wish thiamine got more spotlight. It deserves some 
some that's love. Why, that's why we're doing this podcast. Right, we're going right. to change the world by God. And we'll do a whole episode on Thyman. Uh, we'll bust out my notes. I'll find that that bit from whatever book I found it in. I'll have to look it up because uh, it was really interesting when they talked about yeah. that case. Um, yeah, I think that that's useful to know. Another thing on the carbohydrate sugar conversation that I think is worthy of touching on is this idea of feeding the candida. And I don't know if you've seen this before, but a lot of people, when they get sugar cravings, they will assume that it's the candida making them crave the sugar. Mm -hmm. Um, I will ask your opinion, but I'll throw mine in real quick, is that I think that generally I I, I could go either way. I don't know if I fully believe that. Um, I have one case comes to mind. It was a patient who's worked with me for a number of years. And I think it was last year, maybe around like, you know, New Year. And she reached out. She's like, I just, I overindulged. You know, I, I ate a whole bunch of sugar around the holidays and Christmas. And then basically she went back to eating more normally and she's craving sugar really hardcore. And she was like, I, I know myself. I feel like I have a bit of candida. I forget if she had some vaginal candida overgrowth or what was going on, um, but she was reasonably suspicious and I've worked with her for long enough that I was like, okay, let's let's throw in some caprylic acid and see how you do. And within like a day, she texted me and said, sugar cravings are totally gone. Um, so I think I've seen it at least once where I was compelled to think, all right, yeah, maybe it was candida making you crave sugar. But what do you think of that hypothesis? Have you seen that to be true? Or do you think that's kind of bug paranoia at play? This is such a great question. I definitely think a lot of cases where they think that their cravings are being driven by microbes are in large part being driven by blood sugar issues. So I'm, I think that that happens a lot more than the microbes creating cravings. That's my personal take on things. I do think that, I do think there definitely is scenarios where the microbes are creating some cravings, but to your point, there is this level of paranoia that I have something living inside me that's creating cravings. Like I need to get rid of it. It's similar to the kill mentality that we always talk about. It's Mm -hmm. a lot, it's along the same lines. Um, and I, I will say too, like, even when I had fungal issues, I specifically remember feeling a decrease in cravings with treating them. But again, I was already covering the base of, of blood sugar balance at Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. So, but most of the time when I'm working with someone, you almost have to take out that piece of the equation to really see where cravings lie after that. Mm -hmm. You want to balance blood sugar and then just see where what happens to cravings because a lot of times they go away because cravings carbs if you're low carb isn't necessarily a bad thing it could mean that your body needs more but it it can be filed into this candida craving or whatever mentally and that's problematic if it is a blood sugar related issue because you could then cut carbs and make the situation worse yeah. If you were already too low carb and that's driving the blood sugar issue. And you touched on something I think really important there is that like, if, if you're deficient in something and then your body craves the thing you're deficient in, then that's a logical response. And here right, we are right. like bad body, bad, bad. Right. <laughs> and right. you know, it's like, I think I might've told you last time when my mom and I went vegetarian for a while, she almost immediately within a couple of months started craving steak. 
like blood and right. meat. And it was, she was iron deficient and her body was telling her, yo man, we need iron, get with it. And that was a logical response. But if you feed into, uh, pun intended, feed into, if you feed into the dogma of any particular nutritional philosophy, like in her case, she was hanging out in hippy dippy Ithaca and hanging around with her vegan and vegetarian pals at her new job. And, you know, it, it was like it, this hope and this expectation of like, oh, well, I'm going to be vegan. It's the healthy way to go. And kind of like the dogma of the vegan vegetarian mentality. So that, oh, like bad body, why would you crave meat? That's so bad for you. When actually it's like, no, you're nutrient deficient. Right. What are you doing? And I think similarly, if you're being really strict on your carbs and not eating carbs and your poor body is like WTF, I need to make hormones. I need to like regulate my thyroid. I need to nourish myself. Don't, don't be the person who's like slapping your body on the wrist and saying bad body. Um, I, I think that restriction is the cause of cravings and it's the cause of binging. Like if you find that you're a person who, you know, you cycle between like, all right, starting Monday, I'm going to be super keto and I'm going to count Weight Watchers points and I'm going to eat one gram of carbs per day and I'm going to be really strict and really good and I'm going to be good. And then on the weekend you crash and burn and you're like, oh, I just needed like a cupcake to get through the day. And and then, you know, uh, Monday it's going to be better. If you are cycling and finding yourself in that that pattern of like super, super, super strict and you're being quote unquote good, and then you crash and you fall off the wagon and then you're super good again, like maybe you're being too good when you're good. Like maybe you need to be more uh, moderate in your restriction because I think it's probably the restriction causing those cravings and those crashes. Right. And... I will say to touch on that, you're you're 100% correct. There's so many external, there's so much external noise that could prevent you from listening into what your body needs, especially now. There, like you were mentioning earlier, there's carnivore, there's paleo, there's keto, all pumping these ideas in your head that you're just not doing it right if it's not working instead of like, maybe this diet isn't right for me. Yeah. Um, and I do think that there that creates this mentality that can be very judgmental of yourself too. Mm -hmm. Like this is a willpower issue instead of like, Oh, my body actually needs something. So you can almost start judging yourself and shaming yourself in those scenarios. Absolutely. When that's the worst thing to do, you need to start really listening into your body and the judgment and the shame prevents you from doing that and, and send you down the wrong path. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's definitely something that I work heavily on with my clients is like listening into your body. Like, what is it saying? Is it signaling something? And Mm -hmm. sometimes that can be confusing if you have these overlaying symptoms and there can be transitional Mm -hmm. symptoms that come with trying more carbs. Um, especially as your blood, (laughs) if you're coming from a low carb state and your body probably is not producing as much insulin in that state and then you're all of a sudden adding more carbs in there could be some transitional symptoms that come from that as your body's adjusting to higher carbs um and maybe some some transient blood sugar swings that happen with Mm -hmm. with adding more carbs in 
Um, so sometimes you have to really hone in and listen to how your body's responding. And then other times you have to trust like who you're working with. Yeah. Um, to try something long enough to see if you get over the hump. Yeah. And that is such a tricky thing to navigate is like on the one hand, you know, say you introduce like a FODMAP food or some carbohydrates or a fermented food and you get a couple of gas bubbles, you get like a 10% increase in bloating. And so frequently, so many of our patients have PTSD, honestly, from going through all this bullshit. And they, you know, they have that, that little uptick in symptoms and they're like, oh my God, (laughs) panic, panic mode. Oh my God, I'm getting worse. I'm feeding the SIBO, I'm feeding the candida, dear God. Oh my God. And it's, you know, it's like, that's why you go slow, A. If you go from eating keto to going to the Olive Garden and getting all you can eat breadsticks and pasta, you're going to hate your life. Like, I guarantee right. you that's going to be terrible for you. Right. But right. if you can, like, work your way back into, all right, today I'm going to have some of a sweet potato. Tomorrow I'll have more sweet potato. The next day, you know, I'll have, like, some brown rice and live La Vida Loca. Like, start slow enough that if you do get that uptick in symptoms, it's not going to throw you for too much of a loop. Hold on. <coughs> Hopefully that wasn't loud enough on Cough the microphone. <laughs> Hopefully that was okay. I had like this weird tickle in my throat. Hopefully more tea helps. More yeah. tea always helps, but I'm going to try more tea and see if that helps. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that... Um, it is a tricky place to operate from. Sometimes I'll warn people, like I have to gauge who I'm going to warn, like, you know, like you might, not all cases, but sometimes there are these transitional symptoms that you're going to experience when you add a little bit of stuff in. And some people, again, like they want to know that that's a possibility and it gives them comfort. Um, I would. Yeah. It's also interesting too, that you mentioned the PTSD side of things. I had a a client recently who emailed me like, and this just goes to show you like the level of PTSD that there is in the clients that we experience because it's such a trauma, but you know, get an email that's like, and she's doing well. So like, it's not like she, she's like been doing really well and she was making a smoothie and was about to like drink this almond milk that had like gone bad. And, like, that experience, like, she didn't even drink it. She, like, caught herself. But her whole experience yeah, like started... to her face. Right. Her whole experience started with, like, a food poisoning event. Yeah. So, like, that. that triggers, like, even if she doesn't didn't eat it, like, it totally triggered her. She said she was, like, upset the whole day. Yeah. Um, and she's working with, you know, some someone else to help with the mental side of things. But, like... There's so much trauma around food that even the slightest change of what's happening physiologically or can really stress you out and cause those trauma responses to happen. And it's, it's, and it's problematic for sure. Well, it is and it isn't. I would argue this too, is that yeah. it's, it's problematic in the sense of like, you know, we really need to trust our bodies and listen to our bodies and like have faith that they can heal. But also a lot of it has a reason. And I think that it's a very intelligent, good thing. So for example, like with that patient, if she got really sick from food poisoning, her body on some level knows, holy crap, we don't want to do that again. 
And on some level, that trauma response is trying to protect her. Whether or not she needs that level of protection is up for grabs. So like, okay, does your body need to go into full-blown freakout mode over almost drinking some baby rancid almond milk? Probably not. But if you were to eat some like weird smelling sushi at the 7-Eleven, you would want that same trauma response to kick in. You would want to pick it up, hold it to your face. And right before you took that bite, you want that trauma response to say, whoa, no, we've we've been down this road before. So I think it's a lot of the responses that we see, even if it feels like they're not serving you, they can be. It's like the best of intentions, but poor execution. And I feel like that with the immune system very frequently. Like if I'm talking about, you know, I work a lot with like mast cell people and histamine intolerant stuff. And we'll talk about mast cells. And I find that people will have like this resentment to their immune system if they have like mast cell activation or histamine intolerance or autoimmunity. And it's it's kind of this attitude of like, oh, my immune system is really screwed up and it's harming me. And I'm always quick to remind people, your immune system is trying to protect you. Right. Whether it's doing the best job of that and whether or not it's overreacting to some stuff totally agree with you it might right it could be doing a better job but it is trying to protect you so the intention is good it's just the execution might be a little sloppier than we would like um right right i i think that's such a great point it's like you know even other scenarios that i see similar to that like the body isn't making a mistake by having that reaction or the immune mm-hmm. system doing what it's doing there is a level of protection there I, th- I see that a lot with thyroid stuff too like as you dip low in carbs your thyroid or even low in calories thyroid mm-hmm. function drops your metabolism's trying to like slow down how you're burning fuel yeah which is going to affect you in a lot of negative ways if your body's trying to like hold on to the this energy you're taking in and these calories yeah. you're taking in for dear life, but it knows like, Hey, I'm not going to get many calories. So I need to really preserve these and use them efficiently. Mm-hmm. That's going to cause some symptoms, but your body's really trying to help you operate yeah, as best as you can. So yeah. you're totally right. The body is so crazy how it does have these protective mechanisms in place, but they can create some other domino effects yeah. that aren't great. Yeah. Yeah. You and your body are on the same side. Um, right. It's just, right. you know, sometimes that feels hard to believe, but all day, every day, your body just wants to be happy and healthy and not inflamed and balanced and like do what you want it to do. It's just oftentimes your body is struggling in some way and it needs some help and it, it might need a little bit of a nudge from a multitude of different areas, but I, I want to give the body credit. Right. And I think that's something too, like conventional medicine definitely is guilty of this, but even Honestly, even functional medicine, this drives me crazy about them. Like this whole idea of like, you're insulin resistant and that is bad and that is not appropriate and we need to whack away at the insulin resistance or you have high estrogen, that is bad, that is inappropriate. We need to whack away at the estrogen dominance. And and like, and SIBO, like you have SIBO, that's bad, let's just obliterate it. And it's like, well, at, at least on some level, trying to understand why did the body do this? Considering that your body's not just going to sit there and think like, let's really screw with Amy today. Right. Let's, let's just fuck shit up. 
Like your body's not doing that. So if there's going to be a logical explanation, like at least have like a nanosecond in the clinical process where you try to understand where the body's coming from. Right. And then it's not a matter of like, oh, bad you, bad body, tisk tisk. We need to just whack away at stuff. It's like, well, how can I show the body that it's safe and nourished and protected? And how can I coax it over here to the less inflamed, less dysfunctional side of things? And it's, we're not trying to shove the body in the direction that we want it to go in. We, we just want to help the body process things and like assimilate the world around it better. And I think that that is true with blood sugar also. Um, right. There is this element of like, if you're eating Skittles and like Coca-Cola and Pop-Tarts every day, you need to stop. Uh, like that's not doing you any favors. But, you know, if, if, you've, if you've been fighting against your body for a long time and you've been thinking like, oh, it, this is a bad, inappropriate response. I mean, maybe you just need to look at it from a different angle and think like, what is my body burdened with? Is it endocrine disrupting compounds? Am I overburdened or getting exposed to some chemical man-made shit in my environment? Is it that I'm actually deficient in a nutrient like thiamine? Is it that I'm deficient in carbohydrates and I'm like swinging back and forth between super strict low carb to eating literally like cupcakes and donuts on the weekend and then super low carb? You know, you've got to kind of tease it apart and figure out what your body actually wants. Um, And I would say this too. I don't know if you've observed this. I think also if you eat at irregular, unpredictable intervals, and if you are sleeping at irregular, uh, unpredictable intervals, that could throw off your blood sugar in a big way too. And that's something like one patient comes to mind. We've been talking about this a lot with her and it, it's taken a while to stick. She's working on it, but like this particular patient will do intermittent fasting. And I'm kind of using air quotes with this. She'll do intermittent fasting and not eat anything until like two o'clock in the afternoon and then eat dinner, and then maybe have something before bed. And then like the next day, she'll eat at a totally different time of day. And then like when we started working together, one of the things that came up for me, for her is that I need you to like eat at regular times and have like a designated breakfast-ish time of day within like an hour window and a designated lunchtime and a designated dinner time and like try to have consistency in your schedule. And also with sleeping, cause she was like sleeping at really erratic times and still even now, like she'll be really strict for like a week and then she'll kind of go off the rails for a week and then she'll be really strict for a week and then go off the rails for a month. Um, but I do really think uh, from personal experience and also from, you know, like book learning and reading, yeah. Um, your body needs to anticipate, oh, I need to make some insulin now. I better get ready because she's going to eat any minute. And right. oh, I need to make, you know, stomach acid or oh, I need to make whatever. So if you can try to eat and sleep at approximately the same time every day, yes, even on the weekends, and it kills me to say that, that I think that's also going to be really impactful for your blood sugar so that your body can finally figure out what the heck you're doing and anticipate the demands that you're placing on it. Um, but I have seen that be really helpful. Even if you don't change the content of the food you're eating, if you eat the same stuff and you just make sure that you're eating breakfast around the same time and lunch around the same time and going to sleep around the same time, even that could be pretty profound. Yeah, I would 100% agree. I, I think of it as like circadian rhythm, 
optimization if you Mm want to kind of put a word or a phrase around it um yeah yeah, i definitely see that being problematic with people i've had a i've had one or maybe two there's been two like night shift workers that i've Mm. worked with and it's rough definitely hard to have consistent sleep times because I mean, optimally, you want to stay on the schedule if you're working at night. You want to stick to a schedule, even if it's, like, kind of bizarre. But people have life and, like, parties and things that they have to do. So it's, Mm -hmm. like, not necessarily realistic. But night shift, I mean, with the circadian rhythm disruption is going to be really problematic gut-wise, but also blood sugar-wise and, like, balancing your stress response. Um, So definitely huge there. I think another dietary component that we haven't talked about um, is protein. I think sometimes if mm. protein's a bit on the low side, there tends to be some more blood sugar uh, imbalance, mm. what I've seen. Um, or again, like if you're eating breakfast and it's like traditional, more traditional style American Wheaties. breakfast. Yeah, where it's all carbs mm-hmm. um, and it's not really balanced well. So I think the balance of the meal... All, plays a big role in the blood sugar regulation and some people might be different where they can eat you know higher carb and a little bit of protein like they feel better on that route like so I don't think it's set in stone on what works for everybody but I do think there's like usually a certain level of protein that I want to make sure someone's hitting if they're having a blood sugar some blood sugar issues yeah and I think my guess is that it's probably a combination of like the buffering effect. Right. If you eat just pure sugar or pure carbohydrate, it's going to get absorbed real quick. But if you could buffer it with some fiber or fat or protein, it'll be absorbed slower. I also wonder too, I mean, you need protein to make hormones like insulin and hormones usually get carted around in the bloodstream on carrier proteins. So probably some of that also has to do with how well you're able to make your hormones, make your carrier proteins and actually make receptors because receptors are just big old chunks of protein usually. Right. Right. Um, So maybe that has something to do with it too. Like the, the actual utilization of the hormone as well. Yeah, definitely could be. And I think fiber is a big one as well that you had mentioned being Mm -hmm. a buffer um, and slowing how that, how the carbs are being processed. Um, Fiber is just something that's so low in the standard American diet. And I know we're, we're, we're probably going to talk about fiber until forever yeah. for forever. That'll be but, another episode too. Are you noticing a pattern? Yes. We need several uh, episodes for so many things. Exactly. But I think that the fiber, I know when I was in school, the number that got thrown around was like the average American eats 15 grams of fiber a day, which Gosh. is low 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 um so i do think that in the SIBO space as well fiber can start to SIBO and ibs space fiber can start to dip low because fiber is so hated in the in the ibs and SIBO space yeah Yeah, unfortunately um and sometimes people can like make do on low fodmap and still get enough fiber but it's rare that i see that um most of the time when I'm reviewing things like chronometer data mm-hmm. and looking at their diet, they're maybe slightly better than the standard American, like maybe, you know, in the high teens, low twenties yeah. is typically what I'd see fiber wise. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe 
again, some are low. Like I've definitely seen like 10 to 15 grams too. So it's just something I would pay attention to if you're, if you've been in the SIBO space and that probably is in line with how high your carb intake is. Cause usually if you're eating more carbs, you're probably going to be eating a little bit more fiber as well. Yeah. But Fiber is definitely one in the SIBO space. If you're having some blood sugar issues, another nutrient to look at. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, this is definitely an area where, like, the the idea of, like, balanced meals can be really helpful just conceptually. Like, the idea of having a bit of carbs, a bit of protein, a bit of, you know, fiber, a bit of fat. Right. And that way, A, you're getting a wide range of nutrients, but B, you are getting that buffering effect so that you're not, your body isn't getting bombarded with any one nutrient excessively. Same thing, like, you know, the whole saturated fat, endo, endotoxemia right. thing. Like, if you eat just saturated fat, and I'm calling you out, keto people and, and carnivore people, if you eat just saturated fat, you're probably ripping open your gut and causing a lot of leaky gut and endotoxemia. But if you eat the same thing, but you eat it with a plant food that has some fiber or some chlorophyll or whatever, uh, that doesn't happen nearly as much. Right. Um, so that's a whole other topic we could do. But yeah, I think any one nutrient or any one food in excess has the potential to be problematic. Not because the food is intrinsically unhealthy. It's just that we need balance and our microbiome, right. we, our microbes need balance and it needs variety to thrive. And you can't, you can't bombard your body with any one thing. Um, I, I think that, that that concept is really important. No, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, it's so funny the the, the quote or saying that I have in my head scenario is something that Laura Schoenfeld said um, where it's like she was talking about her clients like a lot of her clients would eat a plate full of bacon and that was totally okay but eating a half of a banana would like is like a no-go because too much sugar so I think like anytime you're in an extreme mentality where you know a half of a banana is like the devil's work almost mm-hmm. yeah um and you're willing to just eat a crap ton of bacon uh, and that's okay that's healthy i think yeah. if you get yourself into those mindsets it's not really a balanced mindset or a or yeah. gonna create balance in the gut in the body in general so yeah, yeah it's it, it's a slippery slope it sure. really it really is and it's sure. not you know I enjoy bacon as much as the next person. Me too. Um, but, you know, balance it out with some carbs and some fiber. And, right. you know, like, heck, we'll do pancakes and bacon sometimes at my parents' house. And I'll try to throw, like, blueberries in the pancakes right. or put, like, strawberries on top. I'll try to balance it with something that has color, at least. Um, even if it is kind of a shit meal, all things together. You know, maybe we do better at lunch and maybe that's just our treat for breakfast right. at bacon and pancakes but yeah of course um yeah i think the balance thing either within the individual meal or balance across the day or across the week is really important um and i think the thing that i'd like to wrap up on because i want to be cognizant of time i know you have an appointment to get to yeah is uh are you familiar with the term nutritionism i am not oh okay are you familiar with michael pollan's stuff at all uh you've You've definitely thrown some stuff around. And oh. I, I'm familiar with him, like basic. I have a basic knowledge base on Michael Pollan. Yeah. Um, so he, I have such a crush on him. Um, 
he, I really like the way he delivers nutrition advice and speaks about it, acknowledging that he's not a nutritionist. He's not a dietitian. He's like, right. a, uh, he was like a New York times writer. And then he just got interested in nutrition, but, um, he didn't coin the term, but he used it in one of his books. I forget who actually coined that term. Nutritionism is this idea that nutrition is too complicated and the individual person can't figure it out. And you need experts like us <laughs> right. to teach you and tell you what you're allowed to eat. And like, I just had a patient yesterday, literally she came to pick up supplements and she brought some wrappers of stuff. She's like, is this okay for me to eat? Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, sure. Yeah. What, like, I mean, so like, like every one of my clients. Yeah. And, and we have been taught for a while now that, you know, science is complicated. Nutrition is complicated. The gut is complicated. SIBO is complicated, whatever it might be. And we're just lay people and we can't figure out what to eat. And we need, we need to catch up with the latest studies, the latest publications, the latest New York Times bestseller, whatever it might be, the latest podcast. Uh, and we need to listen to the experts to figure out what to eat. And so much of the time I'm I try to tell people, no, like you could listen to your body. I think most humans have an intrinsic sense, even, even if you're like really unplugged and you never got taught about nutrition in your life, most people have a sense of direction of like broccoli is probably better for you than a Pop-Tart as an example. And then from there, you know, there's gray area between those two extremes. But I think that most people have some rough understanding of what is healthier or less healthy we just, we need to shut out all of the people and the chitter chatter around us and the people who are saying, no, my diet's the best, eat the plate of bacon, whatever. Right, right. And you need to trust your gut, literally and metaphorically, you need to just trust your instinct and your gut. And that's one of the things I like about Michael Pollan. He's a great speaker too, and he's on YouTube. Uh, he's got yeah. some really good lectures, but he just, he like delivers a lot of this kind of stuff in like a very down to earth, oh, duh, kind of a way. Right. And I, I remember, I mean, a lot of my patients, I have multiple copies of Michael Pollan's books in my office and I literally send it home with people and from my lending library. And I'm like, just read this. One of his books is a really quick read. Um, but, or I'll send them, you know, YouTube videos. I just want to start getting people out of their own head and out of this, like, I have to listen to the experts mentality so they can connect into that intuition and just eat freaking food again. Um, but I really like that. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that science isn't done yet and science is never going to be done. We're going to continue to discover things. We're going to continue learning about the microbiome and carrots and something else. So like, don't ever hang your hat on science and think that science will tell you hundred percent of what you need to know. There's right. some degree that you need to trust your instinct in nutrition, in overall health promotion, you know, sleep habits, happiness, um, you know, even herbal medicine, like the way that we've used herbs for thousands of years might be really important to know, even if an herb is poorly studied in medical literature, if we have data going back thousands of years on how to use a particular herb, maybe we should trust that at least a bit. Right. Um, but anyway, that's like my little soapbox. But I do think acknowledging that is important because so many people become carb phobic and, and go specifically, I've seen that a lot. People who go into the carnivore diet, 
I think every patient, every patient I've worked with who's been on carnivore, actually, that I could think of, has told me in some way, shape, or form that they're confused and they're frustrated and they don't know what to eat. So carnivore on some level is easy because right. they don't need to make a lot of decisions. They just eat meat and that's it. And they're, they're done. And uh, I, I think it's, I, I think that carnivore is thriving to the degree it is because so many people are fearful of food and confused about food right. and just frustrated. And there's like 8,000 different diets you could follow. And at some point, these people just say, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to eat meat. Right. I'm going to eat one thing and be done with it. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting what you're saying about how we're making nutrition way more complicated than it needs to be. Um, it's so funny to me because a lot of the cultures that are the healthiest, you know, these um, more primal cultures that were studied like by uh, Weston A. Price, like mm -hmm. those sorts of scenarios where we're looking at ancestral populations. Um, and uh, again, how healthy they are and they don't have any information that's really clouding their judgment on nutrition and they're eating widely different foods among different populations. Yep. That to me is amazing because you could have people eating, you know, 70% carbs, 20% fat, 10% protein and, the, and are really healthy. They don't have any chronic yep. disease within that population. And then you could have someone eating 70% uh, fat, uh, 20% yep. protein and 10% carb and be very healthy. So, yep. I mean, I think those are the most interesting examples of just like, you know, the culture eating a specific food, uh, food composition and that working for, for them, they're getting all the nutrition they need and it's not complicated and no one's telling them what to do and what to eat. And, and they they're, left have less anxiety and PTSD around their freaking food. Right. And they have less chronic disease just as a whole, a lot of the cultures. So yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to me. Um, kind of the evolutionary uh, approach to eating versus like how we're eating now, which is just wild to me. Yeah. And I think uh, to, to wrap up on that point, I, I think that Michael Pollan likewise sums it up really beautiful. And that is to say, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So, you know, is, uh, and he draws the distinction between food and modified food-like products. And, you know, so for example, like margarine, and I always pick on Pop-Tarts, but, you know, margarine and Pop-Tarts and Cheetos and soda pop, like those are good examples of modified food-like products. They're technically edible, but they're devoid of nutrients and they're processed right. and full of crap versus, you know, carrots and broccoli and cucumbers and onions and things that actually came from the earth and meat and fat. And right. um, I think, you know, that one Michael Pollard book, the whole point is drawing that, that distinction between what is food and what is not food and, you know, is it something that your great-great-grandmother would have recognized as edible? Yes? Right. Cool, eat it. No? Grandma wouldn't know what a go-gurt is? Yeah. Probably don't eat it. Um, well, so, and, I, I, and I do think, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, <laughs> um, but I, I think that with the modified foods, 
they're doing stuff with flavoring to make you think you're eating certain things when you're not. So like mm-hmm. even flavors, like there's a good book called The Dorito Effect. Have you read that book? Ooh, no, I like the title though. Um, but it's essentially like how, like if you eat a Dorito, there's, you can, there's flavors that kind of trick your mind. Like, oh, you're eating tomatoes because there's tomato flavor, there's garlic, there's onion. So there are like things that your brain's processing as something that's good, but Mm. then you get none of those nutrients. Mm. So sometimes the flavor in the food could be hijacking your brain in ways, making it more addictive. I don't really want to say the necessarily totally addictive. I I don't know. I I think companies are trying to make their food addictive. Okay. Okay. I don't love, I don't love like, uh, I don't know considering like Doritos or putting them in the same realm as like drugs, which I know people do Mm. Um, like or sugar, especially like sugar is like as addictive as cocaine. Like I don't, I never like making those connections because to me again, like I I think that you can't really put those in the same category, Yeah, but um, I think there is an addictive quality to it. And then it just messes with your feedback loops with your body if you're getting a lot yeah. of flavors that you know the system recognizes as something different um it, it's a really interesting book i'd recommend it the dorito effect is what yeah. it's called well if nothing else it makes me want doritos not gonna lie um <laughs> i i haven't had a dorito in a lot of years because i forget what exactly they have i think they have dairy in them and i can't touch dairy with a 10-foot yeah. pole but uh i ate many a dorito in my day me my too day. so um yes they were pretty scrumptious but I think weird note, though that may be to end on my fandom of Doritos and also that they're probably atrocious for us. um, I think that's basically a wrap. So I guess, you know, if I was to summarize, again, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Don't overcomplicate nutrition if you don't have to. Um, Obviously, like there are people who wind up on these low carb diets for various reasons. And if you're feeling stuck, then certainly work with somebody who's qualified and understands what you're going through and can help you navigate how to introduce those foods. And if you are, you know, either hypo or hyperglycemic, just know that there are things that you could do to facilitate normal insulin signaling and normal glucose regulation. And there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You can cure your type 2 diabetes. You can cure your hypoglycemia. It might take time and it might be a pain in your ass, but you could do it. And I think both of us, you know, it's it's so convenient actually that both of us had the opposite scenarios where you had the hyperglycemia and I had the hypoglycemia when we had gut struggles. So we right. definitely could speak from experience there. Um, as always, guys, if you are watching us on the YouTube, if you could click the like button, the subscribe thing, leave a comment. We're always open-minded to new ideas and new topics. So let us know what you would like to hear about and obviously click subscribe to the channel. That will help us reach more people. And if you are on a podcasting app like iTunes or Spotify or any of those, if you could go ahead and rate us five stars, that would be super helpful. And again, it helps us reach more people and keep the podcast going and ultimately change the world because this stuff needs to be talked about. And I'm so pumped to be doing this podcast with you, Amy. And uh, I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll catch you on the flippity flip.